Dr. Dwindlin Reese is a storyteller, ethnomusicologist, and museum professional. Reese studied American Studies and Music at Scripps College, American Culture and Museum Practice at the University of Michigan, and Musical Performance at New York University. Her research and projects include exhibitions at the Louis Armstrong House and Archives, the Brooklyn Historical Society, the New Jersey State Museum, and the Motown Historical Museum, as well as being the former Senior Program Officer for the National Endowment for the Humanities. Reese is currently the Curator of Music and Performing Arts at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture, where she co-curated the Smithsonian Year of Music in Freedom Sounds, a community celebration. Reese also curated one of the museum's permanent exhibitions, Musical Crossroads, and received the Secretary's Research Prize to do so in 2017. Reese is a community-driven artist, and she uses her experience and works in the community to inspire the work she collaboratively produces. Dwandalyn Reese, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you, so happy to be here. So um, you're the curator of music and performing arts at the Smithsonian Institute's uh, National Museum of uh, History and Culture. Um, you know, coming into the museum, um, just speak a little bit about its history and what you felt was important to include in um, different exhibitions and programs that you've been a part of. Well, this, this museum, this institution has a long history and actually the idea of a museum really goes back to maybe at this point, maybe a hundred years ago when Civil War veterans wanted to build a, a monument uh, recognizing the service and the sacrifice of African Americans during the war effort. And they worked with Congress for a while and had support of, um, I mean, over the years in the 20th century, um, had some support of Congress, but nothing ever really came of it. And it wasn't until the mid to late 80s when Congressman John Lewis really, um, with some other colleagues, kind of started to bring forth the idea that the, the Smithsonian needed to have a presence to recognize the significance and contributions of African Americans to the history of this country. And it took him close to 25 years. He would introduce a bill to Congress and they would vote on it and it wouldn't pass. But finally in um, 2003, after a lot of tireless work, uh, President Bush actually signed into legislation that the Smithsonian would add a new museum dedicated to African-American history and culture. And then from that point on, we um, they hired our founding director, Lonnie Bunch, in 2005, and the staff started to build, and we had no land, no money, no collection. And in short order, uh, fast forward 11 years, the museum opened to the public in September 2016 um, with 13 exhibitions, uh, a stellar award-winning design by David Ajay and uh, Phil Freelon and Associates, and um, we've been open we're going on our fourth year, 
and has been one of the most popular pilgrimage sites in Washington, D.C. for people across the world. Because you're a curator of music and performing arts, and you have so many tangible pieces of culture, and how, the, how do you link that through to your curation and some of those exhibitions, you, like Musical Crossroads, and um, the importance of, of documenting those histories and stories? I've, I've been at the museum for 10 years, and when I came to this job, um, all I was told that I was um, going to develop this music exhibit and then just go. I, I, I didn't have, a, there was no concept brought to me or framework about how the exhibition had to be. So I really had an opportunity to kind of take my experience, um, my, my experiences as a scholar and working in museums to kind of craft something that really reflected the totality of African-American musical expression, but also put it into a social and cultural and political context. Because what was important to me was not just the music itself, but its significance in American history and from a global perspective. And with anything I do, I'm very interested um, you know, the simple phrase is museums tell stories with objects. So in many ways, I find myself as a storyteller. And, and in the work that I do, I always want to be as um, comprehensive and inclusive as possible, because sometimes there are only certain stories that raise to the top and people know about certain things, but they don't know about certain performers or certain communities and music. So I really took that approach in building the collection, developing the exhibit, helping to do a variety of public programs and any of the other projects I've worked on over the last 10 years. So you speak about the, the names that, that rise to the top uh, and, and then um, I suppose others that you want to make sure that we, we don't forget. I mean, who would, would be some of um, those artists that you find are, are particularly important? You know, I, 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 this is not, I think everybody's important. Of course, they're the popular names that we talk about. I think what's interesting to point out is that um, when I, I came to this job, I think there's a general perception of what African-American music really is. And so people think about gospel, they think about the blues, they think about rhythm and blues. But it was really important to me that I approached this particular project looking at African-American music making. And so the ideas of African-American Americans in country music and classical music and all kinds of genres, um, kind of elevating and looking at people at an equal level because it's all important. It all contributes to um, individual histories and community histories. And so many times the popular stuff just takes care of itself. It's part of a commercial machine. You know, you've got magazine articles, um, journalists, you have video, you, you have all kinds of mechanisms to really um, raise the profile of this music and these artists. But I, I, what, what was really important to me was to let our visitors know that they're, they're important stories as well um, uh, is equally important or maybe even more important that set the foundation for this music and how it operates in the world. 
so going back to that, uh, you, I think as, um, um, you're a musicologist by training also, or ethnomusicologist, I don't know the... Well, I kind of deal, I think more on the ethnomusicologist, my, my grad, my doctorate's in performance studies, but I've always, I entered this field interested in music, and I started out as a performer, but got very interested in working with collections and and working with public audiences. So that's really how I got into this work and using the arts, not only because I love them and perform them, but I think they're a great equalizer in opening conversations among people, learning about each other, um, showing how cultures really um, move and exchange, how they're used to define ourselves, our, our own personal and collective identities. I just think they're a rich laboratory and um, accessible in a way that other um, areas may not be is kind of the way of, of opening the doors for people to deal with um, complicated issues. You also started, I guess, with classical music, and then I was, why did you have that right? Yeah, my, um, I was trained in classical voice and that's what I was doing in college. Um, at some point, as I decided whether to be a full voice major um, versus something else, one of the things that struck me was that the, um, a lot of the music majors are real insular and they just kind of have a one-track mind. And I've always had an interest in history and people and um, really opening doors of communication. And so I, I couldn't throw myself into it. I didn't want to cut myself off from the rest of the world. So I compromised and uh, majored in music and American studies. But it was really a course I took, um, a music course I took my sophomore year um, that really kind of opened my eyes about what I wanted to do. And this was a course, it was a classical music course called Vienna Music Mirror of Society. And so what we did, we looked at classical composers, Schubert, Beethoven, Haydn, I'm missing a big one, Mozart. And instead of just doing a strict musicology course, we took the approach of looking at society and culture in, at that time and how that shaped the music and how that music shaped society. And that co course was one of those light bulb moments for me in showing that there are multiple narratives that come out of the musical experience. It's not just going to a performance or, or listening to a record or listening to the radio, that there's so many stories embedded in the creation, in the dissemination, the reception of music. And those were the things that really fascinated me. I went to graduate school for my master's right after that in Michigan and um, I continued to do work in that area, but I was also um, made aware of a museum practice program. And I started to think about what was really important to me. And one of the things that really resonated with me is that education and knowledge should be shared with as many people as possible. So um, I, began, I began to be less interested in doing the typical scholar track and teaching in a university and decided to take this museum practice program and enroll in it um, with the idea that 
I could pursue my research and scholarship, but use museums and objects as a way of creatively telling stories that reach a broad number of people. And I, I was thinking about this, you know, in preparing for the interview, and I'm thinking, well, how do my life experiences relate, you know, beyond academically, but, you know, to, I don't, I can't say from being, from the inside, I can't know African-American history and culture, like you, you would, in just a natural way. But through music, through the listening of it, I dance every day. So t today I'm dancing to Nina Simone and Otis Redding. And through the listening, you can't help but be moved and have that experience, I believe. Well, that's absolutely true. But, and, and that's one of the things I, I want to get across um, in the exhibit, that you can have that experience, you can enjoy the music, but there's also a rich complexity of stories and narratives that go behind it. So you use uh, Nina Simone as an example. Um, they're regional stories, as she came from North Carolina, from the South. They're the stories of her own evolution as a musical artist. She really wanted to be a classical pianist. And, um, you know, she was uh, turned away from a, a school in Philadelphia and then started playing in clubs in Atlantic City. She was just playing and then one day um, uh, owner of a club said she had to sing. And so she started singing and then we have this wonderful career. So that there is that narrative of um, an artist being who had different leanings and, and being infused with different musical traditions to become who she was. She was also an artist, if you think about the time when she came to prominence in the 60s, um, if you look at her early work, she was doing traditional standards, um, uh, Tin Pan Alley songs, things from Broadway. But in the mid-1960s, she um, started to get involved in the civil rights movement. And so there's another narrative about um, getting close to ties to her own heritage, black power, feminism. You can even look at it in her image and in her dress and in her sound. And what, you know, you can go farther along the lines of other changes of other artists and other communities. But it's important to me for people to understand that they can get so much more besides just that pure listening experience. There's there's a history there. There's a history of racism. There's a history of struggle. There's a history of resilience. There are so many stories of the, the power of place that shape these artists, that shape these communities, um, that, that make the whole musical experience all the more richer um, and opens avenues for all kinds of uh, connections in a variety of ways. I was also thinking, and you would know it more, much more deeply, but about obviously the importance of, of music for African American history, but for uh, many oppressed people, um, you know, you can t when you take things from people, you take their land, you take their language, but wh what comes through in tone, which is not even, you know, you could have somebody, as you say, sing a, a standard, which might be a little, even a candy floss kind of happy song, but if you sing it another way, it's spins it or everything else that's embedded in that? Well, I have, I have several opinions about that. I, I, I do agree that music is 
foundational in the African-American experience. Um, I say that, but I have to explain what I mean. Um, I think music is foundational for every culture, um, that it is a way of human connection, um, a sense of identity, uh, select, uh, a, a, it's a, a form of creating community. It really serves our daily lives in a variety of ways. But one of the things I had to tease out for myself when I started this job and started working on this exhibit, I wanted to ask, my, I wanted to ask myself what made African-American music unique? You know, if I, I have that theory that music is important to all cultures around the world, what was a unique story for African-Americans? And I know there, there are critical debates about this, but the, the thing that kept going around was the role that race played in the United States. Now, you could, you could take that and broaden it when you start to think about the diaspora and the common history of people of African descent and the whole notion of oppression. And, you know, I'm not gonna get into it here, but there the reverberations and there's a certain level of commonality. But in framing this way to kind of approach the exhibit, my approach is not to essentialize musical sound or tone, but to frame it in the context of um, the society that has shaped and has been built upon the enslaved Africans that were brought here to this country. Because no one can argue that the, the issue of race has been foundational in this country's history and still reverberates very much today. So I use that lens to identify what was unique but also to create narratives that embrace the totality of um, African-American expression. Um, I don't mean to say anything in, in such a way. I guess also I lived, I'm also part Irish, and I lived for a number of years in, in Ireland. And, I, and so when I was thinking about tone, or was thinking about, I think, people who, um, you know, communities or groups of people who have been good storytellers, um, storytellers through song, storytellers through the, the, the written or the spoken word, and I think African Americans, I think you can also include Irish people in that too. So I was thinking a lot about this, having this experience, of, you know, when the language is taken away or your country is occupied or something like this, but, you know, they take the language or they take what's left and they, you know, make it their own. I mean, I think you're very, you're, you're right on track there. But music is one of those things, you know, in, in, political and, and cultural battles that carries the weight for so many people. It's a message. Um, you, you maintain your sense of, of uh, agency in a way that is a little more difficult to attack. You know, it's really interesting when you look at the world, how the arts, um, their attitude about the arts and how they're treated or try to cut people off, um, that people understand what power they hold in keeping people together or expressing um, individual opinions. And it's proven time and time over again that the arts sustain us in a way that we 
probably, I mean, those who are con the converted understand, but sustain us in ways that we can't even possibly imagine. The National Museum of African American History and Culture combines past and present in its exhibitions, encouraging both remembrance and interaction from its visitors. I love museums, especially art museums where the please don't touch signs are big and bold and everywhere. The experience of traipsing through a salon-style hallway bedecked in 19th century masterpieces, engaging with the material through my eyes and mind, is exhilarating. I nearly cried from excitement when I got to see some of my favorite pieces at the Louvre this winter. Reverent observation is great, and when art is produced for an audience of informed critics and appreciators, sometimes that art is best experienced through silent concentration. But here, art and cultural objects are alive. They touch all lives. The museum is full of symbols of African American culture that aren't just meant to be seen, they're meant to be touched, laughed at, cried over, tasted, tried on, and in the musical Crossroads exhibition, heard. Dr. Dwandalyn Reese draws from her personal experience as a vocalist and active member of the National Arts Community to inform her incredible exhibition. Musical Crossroads celebrates black artists and their invaluable contributions to all genres of music, ranging from pop music to opera, funk to country and bluegrass. Not only does she do an impressive job of covering the room in instruments, sheet music, awards, and photographs in traditional museum format, she also features mannequins dressed in original costuming. We see a sweet yellow dress worn by Ella Fitzgerald and a beautiful flowery gown that belonged to Diane Warwick. Chuck Berry's re cherry red Cadillac greets all guests at the entrance of the exhibition. The objects she chooses aren't relics of the past, they're iconic symbols that we recognize as people in the present. They'll even touch us in the future. Jimi Hendrix is certainly a permanent fixture in the music culture, and his contributions will not soon be forgotten. Dr. Reese gives visitors to the museum a space to talk and play. In two interactive elements, we can even choose which music we'd like to listen to. Yes, quiet study is important, especially in the museum world. But now more than ever, it's important to remember that we need each other. I'm recording from my home that I haven't left in many weeks due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Even though we can't be together physically, our communities have become increasingly important as we move further apart. And the value of engaging with those communities, past and present, is emphasized in Musical Crossroads. Check out the website for more information about the institution, the exhibition, and Dr. Reese, who is really incredible. Stay safe and stay connected. And you've also been involved with a number of community projects, even outside, I think, Chinese communities in, in Brooklyn as well. I mean, as I understand, you've also, you know, you focus on this, but you've also done a lot of other community work too. Yeah, as I was building my career, it's quite interesting enough. Um, you know, music and museums was always my focus, but when you're starting off a career, you kind of take what job is offered. <laughs> but, you know, I look back on it, it was probably doing these community-based projects um, really shaped my worldview and how I want to do this kind of work. I, I think I, I came of age as a professional at a time where a lot of um, large institutions were really interested in 
diversifying their audiences, diversifying their collections, and trying to reach out to communities and um, work with them so that they could um, tell different stories. And in doing that work, it was always, you kind of have to meet people where they are and kind of negotiate the role of museum as large, powerful institution versus a given community. Um, and how do you work as true partners? How do you respect the stories the community wants to tell in contrast to what you think you should be doing as a museum? And I really learned in that process, I really learned to listen to people, to hear where they were coming from. Um, I, I've learned that, you know, as a museum professional, I'm not the expert. And particularly with music, you're never the expert. I mean, that's part of the challenge because there can be someone who comes to your exhibit or works with you and knows much more about a subject than you do. And so I've really looked at my museum work as, as an exchange um, and as building relationships in, in working with people and the stories I tell and really making sure that I am as authentic as I can be in representing their points of view and being respectful of their own, their own abilities to tell their own stories, but also helping people and empowering people to tell their own stories or to do their own research or to build their own collections. Part of my mission is, is not just to do my own work, it's part of to build a sense of community so people can do their own work. And I really see this as a collective endeavor. Um, and I've, I've carried that on um, as a philosophy throughout my career and even to my work here at the Smithsonian, which is a little harder because we're such a large cultural complex, but it really shapes everything I do um, and informs everything I do. And, and even though those might have been community-based ex exhibitions that were dealt with history or a certain place in different communities, um, I've had the ability to um, extol those principles and working with all types of people and um, really parlay them into the work that I do today. I think the best part of my job is meeting donors, um, sitting with them, going through their objects, listening to their stories, and you know, kind of putting it all together so, so that I can infuse that in my work as a curator, whether I'm developing an exhibit, writing a book, um, doing a digital platform, an interview, or anything like that. that. That information, that passion has to be captured for other people to learn from. And um, as you think about the kind of um, world we're li living the next generation through, if you think about education, you think about museums, what are some of the ways you feel we might improve our current systems? I, I think there are unknown boundaries that we're not even aware of. I think where I am right now, uh, the possibilities of what museums can do with music is uh, a little behind the curb and what's being done outside of museums. And that we not only 
have to consider that in building experiences that appeal to our visitors, but we also need to think about new ways in how we engage with this content. The experience um, is, is key, um, and a lot of that experience, yes, it's individual, but it's also how we experience music as a community, whether it's a community of one or a community of hundreds. And I would love to do more to build into museums and, and other structures, what that ex how we can use that experience in conceiving new exhibitions um, in, in novel ways that really, um, you know, people have a, you know, tactile, physical, sensual engagement with music that can't be captured in your traditional structure of object, label, and display. And so I always see that as the next line. And I also look at what we're being able to do with technology and digital that we have so many ways to really imaginatively bring more content to the surface, those stories that haven't been heard or told that um, I can't even imagine all the ways that are already out there, but we, we really need to be thinking in those ways um, because the rest of the world is far ahead of where we are and you want people to come to your museums and your institutions, but if their experiences are not unique and special, they can get the same thing by sitting on their computer or working on their phone. So, and I challenge myself in my ways because there's a lot to learn and to get out of our comfort zones and, and start taking some risk and, and engaging visitors in new ways. Well, thank, thank you so much, uh, Donda and Reese, for all you've done to preserve and celebrate music and cultural heritage, your life devoted to making the humanities accessible in everyday life and commitment to bringing people and communities together through the universal language of music. And thanks to Smithsonian Institution and the National Museum of African American History and Culture for your many exhibitions and programs. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. And thank you for the conversation. It was really fun. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Mikowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Dariana Davis. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anatolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.